Well, this time it's true. Good morning. Good morning. Right? <laughs> We're on the same page now, right? <laughs> well, I'd encourage you to open your Bible with me to John chapter 15. Let's have a word of prayer before we dive into the word. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we trust you, that you are the sovereign God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In you there is no other. And so, Father, we rightly exalt you because of the work you've done in your Son. And by the power of the Spirit, you have drawn us to him. And we thank you for that. I pray, Father, for your help now that we would hear from you. And as we hear from you, that we would be changed by you. So would you glorify your name? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Lord, I ask you, if you were in spiritual danger, how would you know it? How would you know if you were in spiritual danger? One person answers that question this way says, one indication to know if you are in spiritual danger is the question of your joy. The question of your joy. In other words, the the joy, the barometer of the believer is a great indication of their spiritual health. That if you lack joy, you're going to be lacking spiritually. That it's almost like the engine line engine light flashing on the dashboard of the car, that when there's a problem with joy, there's a problem with spiritual health. A joyless Christianity is the worst testimony to the world. If I were to ask you, and you, I came back from Disney World, and you, you were to ask me, how was it? How was Disney World? I've been at Disneyland, never Disney World. How was it? And you asked me, and I would respond to you this way. It was good. The best time of my life. Uh, okay. but, but, but was it really the best time of your life? It was fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. Would you believe me? Now, of course, it probably was the best time of my life, maybe. But the no joy with the absence of true happiness in that, like, you really wouldn't believe that testimony that Disney World is worth your time and money. A joyless Christianity is the worst testimony to the world. It's even just a worst testimony even amongst believers. Because if you really believe all that you say about who Christ is and what he has done, and it has no impact on your spiritual health, upon your joy, can you really say that you're moved by this Christ? What testimony is that? John Calvin said it this way, that there is not one blade of grass in all the, all the world that is not designed to have you rejoice in God. There is not one color on earth that should not make you rejoice in God. In other words, every single thing around you, everything in the world is designed to point you to God so that you rejoice in who he is. Of all people on earth, we as Christians should be the most joyful Because the reasons why we can have joy is not contingent upon what we're going through or our life as it is. The reasons for our joy is about the unchanging God whom we worship. 
A joyless Christianity is a horrible testimony. And in John chapter 15, we're looking at the first just six verses this morning. We'll come back to the rest of the verses tomorrow. But look what he says at verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. We're coming in the middle here of of the, the upper room discourse here that the Lord is giving to his disciples. This is near his death and resurrection. And in the context here, because it's still in the, in the middle of this discourse, but he's already gave some rich instruction to his disciples. And he already told them, I'm about to leave you. Now, if you're in his disciples' shoes, and think about it, you were walking with the Lord Jesus Christ for the past three years. You saw his ministry. You were ministered by him personally. You saw his power. You were fed by his goodness. And now he's telling you, I'm about to leave you? How would that make you feel? Where are you going? Where, where are you going, Lord? And he already had to comfort them and said, yeah, I'm leaving. But he says in chapter 14, I'm leaving, but I'm preparing a place for you. I'm building a home. I'm making a place so that where I will be, you will also be. He comforted in those words, and he wanted to give them comfort to know that I have a home for you. I'm preparing for you. And not only that, I'm going to leave, but I'm also going to give you the Spirit. And he is going to be with you and in you, and you will be comforted by him, another comforter. And he gave them much comfort there in chapter 14. And now in this chapter, chapter 15, the Lord is moving from comfort, and now he moves to admonition. He's moving from giving them comfort about his leaving to now, now that I am leaving, how should you live and behave in the world before you? He's moving from comfort and now to admonition. How are they to live now? Because the expectation is not for them to stop working. The expectation is for them just to now wait until he comes back. There's much kingdom work to do. I mean, they saw him do miracles. They saw him do great things. And for them, the kingdom work has just begun. If you're in Christ, believer, he saved you for good works. That you were saved for good works. To be used for his glory. So not only can you be comforted with your future hope, but there is also a present joy for you right now. A present joy. That Christian joy is is found in a vibrant life. And we all want this. But how? How do we get this? How do we grow in this? And he begins to answer this in in these few verses we're looking at. He begins to answer this by giving us an illustration of a vine. He uses an illustration of a vine. And we're going to examine just three relationships of the vine. Three relationships of the vine. And they should encourage you to be joyfully dependent upon the Lord. Three relationships of the vine. And they should encourage you to be joyfully dependent upon the Lord. We're only going to look at the first six verses for right now. But in this passage here, this is the the seventh and last I am statement of the Lord in the book of John. All throughout this book, the the, the Apostle John has given six other, before this, I am statements that the Lord himself has made. 
And really what Jesus is doing by, by assuming these statements here, by giving these statements, he is identifying himself with Yahweh in flesh, that I am truly God. And that's really what John wants to do all throughout this gospel, is to show us that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. And because he's the Son of God, you need to worship him. And the, these I am statements, if they're familiar to you, I'm sure when Jesus said, I am the bread, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the door, I am the great shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life. And really, when he's saying these words in the Jewish mind, it's going back to when Moses was coming face to face with God. And he says, well, who should I tell the Israelites, or who should I tell the Israelites, who should I tell Pharaoh that who you are? And Yahweh said, I am who I am. And Jesus now comes on scene, and he's saying, I am. In other words, he is telling us that I am God. I am Yahweh in flesh. And this is just the seventh and last I am statement in the Gospel of John. And what it should do is it reminds us of the glory of Jesus, that he is truly a man, but he is not only a man. That he is the God-man. And he uses this illustration of a vine in this passage for us to understand how to have joyful dependence upon this Lord. Now, as using this illustration of a vine, vines in the vineyard was a common picture in the Jewish minds. In the ancient Near East, the, the, the sign of a symbol of a vineyard was a sign of prosperity. So when they saw a vine, when they saw a vine or vineyard, Automatically, automatically for them, that was an indication of just wealth, spiritual wealth, prosperity. Even on the Maccabean coin, there was a vineyard on it, on the coin, on the money. There's even legend that holds that Herod on this temple, on the front of the temple, he put um, on the gates, engraved on the gold, a, a, a picture of a vineyard. In other words, symbolizing here that this is prosperity here. That all throughout their mind, they understood that the vine is a symbol of prosperity, a symbol of well-being. But more importantly, the vine in Scripture is often used as speaking of what group of people? What do you think? Israel. That the vine is used constantly in the Old Testament, and the vine is used to describing Israel. Israel is said to have been brought out of Egypt and planted as a vine on the land, but was forsaken. There's plenty of examples, but just a few. Psalm 80, verse 8 says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21 says, Yet I planted a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and have become a wild vine? In other words, God is saying, I took you out. I planted you. How is it now that you've gone astray? The clearest picture is found in Isaiah chapter 5. If you want to turn back to Isaiah chapter 5, in the context of judgment here, Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. 
And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. He he built it up, fortified it, and expected now what? Grapes to come from that vine. But look what happened. But it produced only worthless vines. What a sad picture here. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard, what I have not done in it? Why then I expected to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds and to rain, to rain no rain on it. You have a, here a clear picture here of, of, of Israel being plucked out as God's choicest vine planted And now what he says, I expect good grapes to come from it, but now it produced what? Worthless grapes. Nothing. John MacArthur said that Israel's apostasy made it an empty vine and for a long time disqualified as a channel for God's blessing. And You see here all throughout scripture there, Israel being shown as a picture of God's vine, his choicest vine, and yet they've turned aside. But now... In John chapter 15, who comes on the scene and says, now, I am the vine. The Lord Jesus Christ now and says, I am not just the vine, he says. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. I am the one who will bring blessing. I am the one who will completely fulfill God's plan. I am the one who will bring prosperity and not just physical prosperity, but blessing, spiritual blessing. I am the true vine. So why does this matter? Because now he is affirming that I am the true vine. I am the one that brings true blessing. So I want us to see these three relationships that he begins to describe of the vine. Let's just look at the first relationship. And the first relationship involves the father's attention to the vine. The father's attention to the vine. In verses 1 through 3. Because the father, he says in in verse 1, that my father is the vine dresser. The father is described as the vine dresser or the gardener of the garden, so to speak. That he is the one who is gardening here. And as the gardener, he takes care of the vine and its branches. Now, depending where you live, I know in my area, further up north in Paso Robles, it's a huge area known for vineyards. But vineyards require careful attention. They require consistent and attentive care. But here's what we must understand about this metaphor that he's using of a vine. Because the goal of the vine is to do what? What do you expect a vine to do? This is where you talk back to me. What do you expect a vine to do? To bear fruit, right? I want not just any fruit, but if I put a vine down there and it takes careful attention, consistent attention, constant care, I want to come grapes from that, right? I want grapes from it. You want to produce grapes. And really here, the production of grapes, it displays the glory of the owner of the land. 
Because when you see grapes coming in fulfillment there of all of the hard work, it gives glory to the vine dresser. It gives glory to the gardener because you see all of the wealth that comes from those grapes. You can do many things from those grapes, from wine and so forth, all these kinds of things. And verse 8 later, later says how God is glorified at the fruit that we bear because it rightfully exalts his wealth. Now, if that's true, if you want to see grapes from the vine, he's using this illustration now. The father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine. And what we're going to see here is that the believer, we are the branches. And it's important for us to see how he's describing this metaphor so we can learn about how this really applies to our daily walk as believers. Now, in order to maintain this fruitful vine, what does a good gardener do? In order to maintain a fruitful vine, a good gardener has to remove dead branches and not only remove dead branches, but you know what he must do even to the good, fruitful branches? is to prune them, is to cut them, even the good branches. Because look at verse 2. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We'll come back to that. And every branch that bears fruit, this is a good branch, it bears fruit, he prunes it. Why does he prune it? So that it will bear more fruit. This process produces stronger and greater branches here. This seems almost antithetical to what you want to do to a thriving plant. A branch that is doing its job, that is is bearing fruit, it is doing what it's supposed to do. And the last thing we would naturally think to do to a thriving branch is to cut it. But a good gardener finds those branches that are bearing fruit, and you know what this gardener does. He cuts it because when cutting that, it bears more fruit. Pruning is a skill because he's not just saying he just cuts it off. But what he's saying here, he's pruning it. And this pruning requires careful attention, but also careful skill so that you cut it not too far where you kill the branch and then it doesn't bear any more fruit. And it also requires you to cut it just enough so that when you do cut it, it bears just enough fruit for it to bear even more fruit. So it is a careful skill that it takes to pruning here. And who's the vine dresser in this? Who's the vine dresser? The gardener. God is, right? And this is what he's doing to believers. Believers who are bearing fruit, what is he doing? He is pruning them. And the, why, the reason why he prunes is so that these believers will now bear additional fruit. And so if the father is the vine dresser and the goal is more fruit, how does that fruit come in us? This fruit comes in us through pain and through discomfort. If we are the branches and God wants to bear fruit through his beloved, how does he bear fruit in you? He bears fruit in you through your pain, through your discomfort, through your trials. That's what God is doing. That in this, he designs to build more fruit, to bear more fruit. This pruning is a slow process. If you ever watch someone in a garden who knows what they're doing, because many people are in a garden, and you see weeks later this garden is dead, but someone who knows what they're doing, and if they're pruning it, it is a careful process where you're watching it, you're attentive in it, 
day after day, seeing how it's growing, and you have to prune it, hurt it, in order for it to bear more fruit. But this pruning is a slow process, but it's very intentional about what God is doing in the life of his believers, is that he is causing pain and discomfort not to break them down, but to strengthen them. I want you to think about it this way, that God never wastes anything. In your life, God never wastes anything. Every single thing in your life is designed to build you up in Christ. Everything. That there is no trial, no heartache, nothing in your life that is not designed by the good gardener, to, but, but other than to bring you more fruit. He has your good in mind. Nothing is ever wasted. And as common as this metaphor is, I don't think we obviously understand it because we're not in this culture. But he prunes faithful branches so that they bear more fruit. Would you think about it this way? If you're bench pressing, now, in order for you to want to lift more weight, what, do you, what must you do? If you have the goal to, to build more weight, what must you do to build more weight? To add more weight to what you're benching, right? You start off small. You start off reasonable. It, sh- it should hurt a little bit, but you want to be able to do it, right? But what do you do now after you've been doing this a few days? You add now more weight. You add more pressure. And guess what? Is it easy? I hope not. If it's easy, you're not doing it right. But you add more weight to bring more pain to yourself. Why? So that you can become stronger to lift it. And so what God is doing here is he adds more weight, more trials, more pressures. And it's not to crush us, to kill us, but it is to make stronger the believer. In other words, the slogan we know, no pain, what? No gain, right? And so the gain comes through the pain. And so he says here, he prunes the branches so that they bear more fruit. You don't complain at the weight as you're bench pressing because you understand and fully submit to its purpose. You're not mad at the process. You fully submit to it because you realize what is the goal. The goal is to make me stronger. Now, if we were to view the Christian life this way, how can we truly have joy without understanding this? How can you truly have joy if you do not understand that everything God has in your life, good and bad, is intended to make you stronger so that you bear even more fruit for him? If you understand that, then you fully submit to the weight. You fully submit to it and you gladly press forward. And that's what he's doing. Imagine having that perspective. Because what pruning could look like in our life, what does pruning look like? You think of providences, everything God's working through secondary means in our life, interventions, upsets. What about things taken from you, people taken from you, health conditions, financial strains, difficulties in relationships? You name it. All of these things are pruning in order to expose our weaknesses, but ultimately to make us stronger. Because it's through that pruning that God does his finest work. There are no accidents in the Christian life. No accidents. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, that in this pruning that we're going through, that as the Lord prunes us, he says that we must fix our eyes 
not on the blade that prunes us, but on the hand that holds the blade. That in this pruning that God does in our life, we don't want to look at the trial or the hardship that God is using, but rather look to the hand that holds the blade. And do you trust that hand? Do you trust the gardener? Do you trust that what he is doing is for your good? That when you look at the blade instead of the hand, then you will lose joy. Because you're looking at what you're losing. You're looking at how difficult life is, how frustrating it is. You're looking at the hardship, but you're losing sight of the hand that's holding it. And if you see that hand, you realize there the gardener is working intentionally for the good. And this really is medication for the WIN syndrome. The WIN syndrome. W-H-E-N syndrome. What is that WIN syndrome? You know, whenever you're in something right now, even for you right now, you're probably thinking, you know, like, when I get to high school, things will be different. No, when I get to college, then I'll be able to make my own decisions. You know, when I did this, then my parents will understand. When this happens, then he'll like me. When this happens, then she'll like me. When I get there, then they'll be. Like, we're always talking about when. We're always looking at the future, right? We're looking at, okay, if this wasn't here, then things will get better. If this wasn't here, then I can have my way. Then I'll have joy. When this is done, then I'll be at a place where now I can really thrive. When we have that mindset, we lose sight of really what God wants to do in us. Instead of looking at the wind syndrome, instead of, instead of adopting that wind syndrome, you trust him and you realize that no matter what you're in, God is working. Because afflictions would only stop if they were useless. Right? If, if afflictions truly were useless in your life, then they would, they would cease. And that is why they never stop. <laughs> because they're useful. That God uses trials and hard things for good. So let me ask it for you this way, because... Oftentimes we talk about trials, especially adults like me, like when I'm talking about it, like we're thinking about like, you're not thinking about my problems. You're not thinking about bills. You're not thinking about, the, you're not thinking about all the different struggles that I have. But let me ask you a personal question. Let me just ask you a personal question, believer. What is difficult in your life right now? What is difficult in your life right now? What is hard for you? Where are you struggling at? Not even just in your spiritual walk in terms of sin, although that's involved, but I really want to ask you, like, what is difficult? What is hard for you to really submit to right now? And may I suggest that that difficult thing in your life right now may be used by God to prune you. And if you view that as a pruning by God, then the next step would be, how does this gardener want me to walk through this? Because if he's already given you everything you need, then it's not a question of you don't have resources. It's just about what must I submit to so that I could gladly submit to this pruning process by the Lord. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what is difficult for you right now. What's hard? What are you toiling with? What are you struggling at? Whatever that is, believer, Do you trust that God's hand is in it for your good? Do you trust that he wants to bear more fruit in you? God's desire is to bear more fruit, not to crush you. When we understand this this simple truth, we can handle pruning a lot better. So that as you mature in your faith, the Lord's purpose in every providential pain is to produce even more fruit. 
And what is this fruit? What is he talking about here? What is this fruit? Fruit is not defined in this passage for us. But I think clearly the qualities of the Christian character are in mind here. Just like the rest of the New Testament, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verse 22. You have all the, the fruit there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? All, that, that's, that's the fruit there. Matthew 3, 8 says, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That repentance, ongoing work of repentance in our life is fruit. And what does that repentance look like? Because we don't just repent when we come to Christ and are saved. That believer, we're called to live a life of repentance. And what does that mean? Is it's constantly turning from our flesh, turning from our sinful desires, and turning to Christ. That is a process that never ends in our life, that we are living a life of repentance. I remember seeing a meme, since you guys are on the theme of cartoons. Now, this is probably, I don't know, many people have watched this. You guys ever, ever watch Pinky and the Brain? Yeah, some, okay, some, except, right? Yeah, this is, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, I wouldn't call it old school, but it's an older car- cartoon. Um, and there's this meme, and so there's these two mice, and one's called the brain, he's like the smart one, he leads the other mice, and the other one's Pinky, he's like the silly, like the dumber one, right? So it's Pinky and the brain, and so uh, there's this one meme, and it says in the picture, and Pinky comes up to the brain, and he says, hey, 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 what are we going to do today? And then the brain says, same thing we're going to do every day, repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> And then, of course, that was a theme in the show. Like, he said, what are we going to do today? And he wouldn't say that in the show. But they're adopting this meme to show, like, what are we going to do today, believer? We're going to do the same thing we do every day. Repent and believe the gospel. That that is our lives as Christians. As every single day, I'm going to repent and believe the gospel. That is our life. And so bearing fruit involves repentance. It's, of course, the fruits of the Spirit, um, where you're just pouring out even service for others. You can even add to that. Seeking to be pleasing to the Lord. Clint Archer said it this way, that fruit is contribution. Anything you do or are that adds value, that expands the kingdom, that brings glory to God, that is a benefit to God or his people. Any good change in your heart or your life. He just really just opens up the floodgates for that. What is fruit in our life that God is working in us? Anything that you do that adds value or expands the kingdom. Anything that brings glory to God, that is a benefit to God or God's people. Any good change in your heart or your life, that's fruit. And so we don't know all the infinite things that God is doing, but in all these things, he wants to bear fruit. But there is one prerequisite for bearing fruit. And what is that prerequisite? Look at verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, having said this, he now says... Now, you are already clean. Now, what is he talking about here? This word clean, in other words, for, for pure, that they were cleansed. And why were they cleansed? They were cleansed because of the message of salvation. They were, clear, they were cleansed because of the message that purified them. Think of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, when it's speaking about the context of marriage. And, and God says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did Christ give himself for the church? So that he may sanctify her, already having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word. This idea of cleansing here is this this cleansing process of purification that happens when you come to Christ. And when when you come to Christ, he cleanses you. He sanctifies you. And that sanctification is an ongoing process of cleansing. 
And so he says to the disciples here that why does God um, prune to bear more fruit? But then he also says, you're already clean because the word I spoke to you, because the message I spoke to you. So the one who bears fruit, the one who abides is doing so. Why? Because they have been cleansed. And they have been cleansed. In other words, we can say it this way. You have been cleansed, believer, and you have been cleansed and put in a position now where you can bear fruit. That without this cleansing, we can just go home. If Christ did not cleanse you, if he did not wash you and purify you, then any hope of bearing fruit, any hope in abiding in this Christ is lost. Because when the believer comes to Christ, they come to him, they are cleansed, and he grasps them into the true vine, and now you abide in him as a response. So in other words, we've been cleansed, we've been put in a condition, and we're fit now to bear fruit. So now that you've been cleansed, believer, he's going to say, abide. So let's look at the second relationship. Not only the father's attention to the vine, but the second relationship is the believers abiding in the vine. The believers abiding in the vine. So now, according to the Lord's metaphor, he is the vine. The father is the vine dresser. And believer in Christ, you are the branches. Having been cleansed, the expectation of the branch is to do one thing now. He cleanses you, he saves you, he washes you, he justifies you, and now there's one expectation now. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. You do what it's been designed to do. The branches should bear fruit. And if the branch does not grow, he says, already said, it's taken away. But what I want you to understand here is the command for you, believer is not for you to bear fruit. Okay, I want you to hear this. The command is not for you to bear fruit. What is the command in verse 4? Remain in me. Abide in me. The command is not to bear fruit. The command is to abide, to remain in me. But when the abiding happens, when you abide in Christ, what's the inevitable result? Fruit. The expectation is that you will bear fruit, but the command is not to bear fruit. The command is to abide. And to abide in the vine, Christ, and he abides in you. He says in verse 5 that he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We're expected to bear fruit. But you are unable to bear fruit in and of yourself. Now hear this. Because he's saying here, you you can do nothing without me. He's saying that without me, you can do nothing. But what Jesus is not saying here is you can't do things without him. He's not saying that you, you can't have, you can't raise a family without him. He's not saying you can't earn a living. You can't practice generosity. You can't lead a ministry. You name it. He's not saying you can't do things without me. But what is he saying you can't do without him? Bear fruit. Now hear this, that you can be so busy in, quote unquote, doing the right things, working in ministry, being busy for Christ, raising a family, working at school, doing all these good things, quote unquote, but it does not mean you're bearing fruit. You can be very busy But it does not mean you're bearing fruit because Christ says here, the only way that you bear fruit is by abiding in me. 
Now, hear this as well, that the believer abides in Christ because the believer has been grafted into the vine. And so as believers, when you come to Christ, you are abiding in Christ because he brought you to Christ. But now he's speaking here the responsibility of the believer that because now you abide in Christ, because he says in John chapter 10 that you're in my hand and no one can pluck you out, because that is true now, believer, he is commanding you to abide in him. As one person said it this, this way, is that abide in me does not constitute a condition which man cannot fulfill in his own power before Christ will do his part. Far from it is it is a sovereign grace from start to finish, a sovereign grace of God. But the responsibility of abiding in Christ is placed squarely upon man's shoulders, exactly where it belongs. And the power to do so has been gifted because this believer now has been cleansed and fit to do so. And so he's calling, he's commanding, abide in me and I in you because you can't do anything without me. It's just as foolish as if you were to, if I were to go to one of the popular vineyards around my house, and if I were to cut off a huge branch just full of rich grapes, if I were to take it and cut it off, take it home, and I were to like paste it or or, uh, nail it to the fence around my house with full of grapes and I would have taken it there and boasted in it, like, look at my branch. Look how, look how wealthy I am. Look at all these grapes. Look at it. And it may look really beautiful for a while. It may have some rich, sweet grapes there that you can do much with. But what's going to happen to that vine after a few weeks? Maybe even a few days. Eventually those grapes are going to die. It's going to wither. Like, that's the foolish picture here that, that Christ is painting for us. He's saying, you can't do anything without me. That nothing could happen that is of lasting value unless it's in me. Unless you abide in me, nothing can happen. This is just because an independent branch can't do anything. Now, we're going to come back to what it looks like to be a false convert in this branch, but, but I want you to get his point here. Abide in me as he's talking to disciples. I am leaving, but abide in me. But what does it mean to abide? Because John uses this word abide just 11 times in this chapter, which is a lot. But even more, he uses the word abide 40 times in the Gospel of John. 40 times. And even 27 times in the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That this idea of abiding, remaining, is a huge theme in John's mind. And literally, abide means, it means to remain. To, to persist there. Now, why would Jesus ask them to remain in him after he said he was leaving them? What is, what is he getting at here? What's his goal? How can, you abide, how can I abide in you, Lord, if you're leading, leaving us? He says it later in verse 7, but he's comparing this idea of abiding with letting his word abide in you. That when Jesus is saying, abide in me, and he is leaving He's saying there to them, let my words remain in you and I in you. He is associating, he's comparing this idea of abiding with his word dwelling, remaining in us. In verse 10, he even emphasizes the obedience that comes from it. So this abiding here, with my own definition here, what he's saying here for us to abide, in other words, he's saying cherishing Christ and his word in such a way that changes your affections and actions. And when he's saying abiding here, he's saying for us to cherish Christ 
and his word in such a way that changes your affections and your actions. That as he's leaving them, he's not just calling them here just to to live and to sit and wait for him. But he's saying, no, abide, remain in me. And how do you do that? Let my words remain in you and I in you. Remain in me through the word. That when Christ saved you, he cleansed you and connected you to the vine. And by his own promise, you will remain in the vine because he said earlier, like I said in John 28, that no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And because this is true, abide in him. And the believer will abide, but that does not absolve our responsibility to abide in him. And if you abide in him, you will bear fruit and you will grow. So really, the simple command here and what Christ is giving to his disciples, he's not giving them some, some upper, upper intellectual teaching here. What he's simply telling them here is to cherish me. You have cherished me because I've cleansed you. I've washed you. I've brought you to myself. I have connected you to myself. I have grafted you to myself. And now because that's true, cherish what I've done in you. Cherish me. Abide in me. And how do you abide in Christ? How do I abide in Christ now as a believer who I can abide because Christ brought me to himself? What does that mean? Do I just sit and live my life? No, I cherish this one who brought me to himself. He's commanding his disciples, remain in me. And how do you do that? Take my word and let it dwell richly within you, as Colossians 3.16 says. To remain in me means to cherish all that I am. And how can you know all that I am unless you hear all that I have said? That he is connecting this idea with abiding with his word. And he later says, we'll look at later, is with abiding, with his, uh, remaining in his word is to abide in his love. I just want you, just, you catch the simplicity of this passage? Like, this isn't intellectually difficult for us. But do you see how powerful it is? How, how powerful it is for a believer to simply rest in God's promises. I want you to chew on that for a second here, because he's not just saying, read your Bible. He's not just saying, understand these things. What is he saying here? Abide, remain, let it dwell within you. Let this be cherished within you. Do you understand our biggest problem, our biggest struggle as believers is simply believing the promises of God? Do you understand the reason why we struggle to grow in Christ is because we fail to truly trust God's simple promises, to simply take him at his word. And the one admonition here he's giving to his disciples before the Lord leaves them is to remember to remain in me, to persevere in me. And they will persevere. Why? Because they've been cleansed. They've been preserved to persevere in him. And so now he says, remain in me. Cherish me. Cherish my word. We'll talk more about this later. But but for now, abide. I want to look at the third relationship. The unbeliever's accountability to the vine. The unbeliever's accountability to the vine. 
What's equally important about this is that abiding in Christ is, is not a recommendation. This is not a recommendation. This is not a second step. This is not a higher tier to the Christian walk that the believer abides because the believer has been saved and cleansed to abide. So it's not a recommendation. It's an imperative that comes with grave consequences. Because what happens to the one who does not abide? The one who does not abide is still accountable to the vine dresser. Right? Even for someone who does not abide, it doesn't matter if you don't believe it. It doesn't matter if you don't do it because you're still accountable to this vine dresser. And what happens to the one who does not abide in Christ? Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. See a scary picture here. Like what's happening to this branch that does not abide, that this branch that does not bear fruit? It dries up, it's gathered together, and it's thrown into the fire and it's burned. This scary terminology here is used to describe the eternal consequences of the person who does not abide in the vine. This is not speaking of a, a, true, a, a believer who is a true Christian and then they just walk away from their faith because as we've learned, true Christians will never be snatched out of Christ's hand. So what is he talking about here? Because look at the text here in verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. And look what he says in verse 2 that I, I skipped over in the beginning. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Now, think about this. How is this possible? If he says a branch in me does not bear fruit, how is that possible? Because if we just said that if you're in Christ, you will bear fruit because you are in Christ and he will bear fruit through you. So how is it possible in verse 2 that he says, if there is a vine in me and it does not bear fruit, he throws it away? Wait, it, it, it should have never been in you if it's not bearing fruit, right? But look at the words there. It's clear, right? You see that. If it, it's in me, it does not bear fruit. This is where he's connecting this idea in verse 6. Because he says here that anyone who does not abide in me, he is thrown away. He's speaking the same category of people. Why don't they abide in him? Why aren't they bearing fruit? Because they've never been cleansed. They've never been cleansed. They may be around the vine. So when he's saying in verse 2, everyone in me, he's not literally saying that everyone who is truly a part of the vine. He's really giving a picture here of, of those who are, quote unquote, in me. Those who are, in other words, in the church, who are around Christians. They look like Christians. They say the right things. They say they do the right things. They may even give good offerings. They're around Christians. They look like grapes, right? They, they, they look like grapes. They smell like grapes. But what is he saying here? They are never really in the vine. That there, be, there are many Christians in the church, at your church, in my church, who look like Christians, talk like Christians, but the true test is, where's the fruit? Because the believer will bear fruit. And so what happens to those who are around the believers who look like grapes, smell like grapes, but when you taste it, it is sour and it's not grapes. It's not bearing fruit. It is withering and dying. What's going to happen? Eventually, it'll be exposed. I want you to see a clear picture of this because, you know, this is almost like a, a clear picture of when you think of the 12 disciples, but we're all 12 disciples, true disciples of Christ. 
No. Think of Judas around Christ, right? Quote unquote, in Christ, but he never truly was. He was around disciples. He was even carrying the money for Jesus. He looked like one of Jesus' disciples. He looked like he followed him. He looked and said all the right things. But look what was a true test. There was no fruit in Judas' life. And no one knew that. But the true test came, and the blue book showed no fruit. And what does he say? They're thrown into the fire. They're dried up and thrown into hell. That this is a scary, scary picture. He says the one in me, in verse back in verse 2, this is a present participle he's using. And it's, it's talking about someone who's never truly bore any true lasting fruit. It's not saying you won't see good things, you won't see positive things in this person's life, but there is no true mark of change. That you can confess Jesus as your Savior all you want, but if Jesus is not Lord of your life, if there are no changes in your desires and your affections, if there's been no change in your life since you said you came to Christ, there's no fruit that came out of that because you're in the vine. If there's nothing in your life that shows evidence, that should be a concerning sign to you. Like just because you say he's Savior, it does not mean he saved you. But he must be Lord in your life. And when the true believer comes to the Savior, they come to the Savior as Savior and Lord. That's why Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And this is a sad picture of many who will on that day say, Lord, did we not call you Lord, Lord? Did we not do all these things? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's commanding them, abide in me, cherish me. And this was a much needed reminder for them, thinking that they were losing everything. You're going, where can we follow you? But he was saying, no, I'm going to give you a comfort of the spirit. But here, no, no, you can abide in me. Abide in my word. Let my word live in you and you'll bear much fruit. You can't do anything without me. And the only reason they can abide He made them fit to abide, and they do abide. But now he's commanding them to press in to what he's given them. Because you are in me, press in, cherish me. And how do you cherish me? You cherish what I have said. Cherish my word. Let it live in you, because when it lives in you, it changes you. And as a believer, as it lives in you and changes you, it changes your taste, it changes your affections and your desires, so that the more that you want is more of Christ. You want to speak more of Christ. You want to honor Christ. You want to see more of Christ. I want to abide in him, because there's no other place that I have a taste bud for but the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is that? because he made you fit to abide. And now, believer, abide in him, rest in him, cherish him, love this Christ who saved you and washed you. Like, that's what we need. And in this scary illustration of verse 6, for those who say that they abide in Christ, but there is no fruit, this should cause us to sit up in our seat in a little bit. Because we ask, where is the fruit? As you know, James 2, verse 26 says, faith without works is dead. 
But Jesus here is getting there now. Abide in me. I in you. You'll bear fruit. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. So while we are commanded to bear fruit, take heart to the roadmap here. Because he's, again, he's not commanding you to bear fruit. He's assuming you'll bear fruit already. It's already expecting that you'll bear fruit. But what he's commanding for us is to abide. Because the one who does abide will bear fruit. And so we have to realize our responsibility as blood-washed Christians to abide, to persevere, to rest, to cherish in all that Christ is. And the reason why you do that is because he made you fit to do that. And so because he has, what other good for you is there, is there but to rest and to cherish this Christ, to cherish in his word? That the fruit is the evidence of faith and abiding is the response of our faith. That we abide because of what we have and the fruit there is the evidence thereof. It is necessary to explore, like, how do I richly abide in the Lord? How do I richly abide in the Lord? Now, practically speaking, it is this simple. It is this simple. Let his word consume you. Let his word consume you. Again, I'm not asking how many minutes did you spend read your Bible this morning? How many minutes do you spend every day reading? At the end of the day, you know, I don't care about that. But you know what I care about? Did you abide in him? Are you, are you resting in his word? Are you cherishing his word? Are you just reading it because you know you're supposed to? Or how much is this reading here your, your bread? How much is this reading to, is not just reading it, but meditating on it, but cherishing it, delighting in it, praying it. That when his word is consuming us, it changes us. You get that? That when his word consumes us, it changes us. And that's why the command time and time in Scripture is for it to dwell richly within us. If you were telling me you're going to run a marathon, someone's going to say you're going to run a marathon. Anyone ever run a marathon here, by the way? 26.2 miles, right? Anyone ever run a marathon? You ran one? Oh, you say, I don't believe you. <laughs> that doesn't tell me you ran a marathon. <laughs> if you ran a marathon, did you walk the marathon? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, if you ever meet a marathon runner, like they, they have to be serious about their preparation, right? If you don't just get up and wake up in the morning and like, yeah, I think I'll do that. Yeah, I'm going to run a marathon next week. You know, I'm going to change. I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to start the, I'm going to run the LA Marathon next week. You don't just do that. That takes preparation. But if you're going to tell me you're going to run a marathon, I'm like, okay, how much did you train today? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm training. How much did you train? Well, for five minutes. For, wait, five minutes? Yeah, yeah. For what? For the marathon. Okay, you're just starting now. Okay, so what are you going to train tomorrow? Probably five minutes. Um, you're going to run what? A marathon. Do you know how many miles is in a marathon? Yeah, yeah, 26 miles, right? Okay, so how long are you, how long are you training for this? Five minutes a day. 
Like what's going to happen to that marathon runner when they hit that 26 miles? They won't even hit the 26 miles. But when they begin to run that course, they're unfit for that. Because a marathon runner is immersed in that training. They are immersed in it day in, day out, preparing for that marathon run. They are cherishing it. They're resting in it. They're really much following this, this rigid course, this rigid preparation, because they're running an intense marathon. You can't just step up to the line and expect to succeed in any measure without intense preparation. In a small way here, when we're talking about abiding in Christ, we're not just talking about here. Yeah, I go to church on Sundays. I open up and crack open my Bible every once in a while here. We're not just talking about doing all the right things so you can, your small group accountability leader can say, did you do this? And you can say yes. I'm not just talking about those things. I'm really just asking here, how much does the word really just richly abide and rest in you? How much do you hunger and go after the word, not because you feel like you have to, but because you have a God-given hunger that can't be saturated, can't be fulfilled by anything else but him. That to abide in him, Christ knew what his disciples needed. They needed to rest in him, and without that, they would fail. And as Peter would later, he would deny the Lord three times. But as Jesus said him, the reason why that Peter still persevered and Judas didn't, because Jesus told Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so when Christ is saying to them to abide, he is reminding them that all they need to succeed and to prosper is to remain in him and he in them, and they're going to bear much fruit. Now hear me, as direct as this may sound, as I'm speaking to you, this is thrice convicting to me. All right? This is not just something me talking from a high horse looking down. You need to abide, young ones. Like, this is a pursuit of my personal life that I struggle with day in. Lord, give me an increasing hunger for you. I know I need to abide and rest in you. But what's that toilet? What's working in me is my flesh fighting. I have the world at me that the enemy is a real enemy. But, Lord, I know what is good for me is Christ. And every time he answers that humble prayer, I see more of Christ. And I realize there was nothing else good for me but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's only through the pressures of life, through the pruning of life, do I see how good Jesus is. So as you come to the end of your rope and you realize, I need to hunger more of Christ. I need more of Christ. I'm struggling there. I know he is good. I know he's opened my eyes to his goodness. There is fruit in my life that I've been changed, but I'm struggling here. And it's in that humble prayer that you come before the Lord and say, Lord, I know who you are. I trust your promises. Would you give me an increasing hunger for your word? Not just to read it, not just to say I've read it, but to really cherish it, to abide in it. Because as I abide in it, Christ abides in me and I bear fruit. I have changes in my life, changes of affections, desires, and there's fruit. And that's what God wants to do through the pruning that he's doing in you. You'll never reach a point when your abiding has been fulfilled. We're never going to stop abiding. That's never going to be like, okay, I've, I've abided enough. I've reached it. We want to excel still, still more. Remain in the vine, having his word inform and rule your thoughts, convictions, and goals. I'm going to just machine gun you with some applicational ways of just practically putting this to some wings. And we're going to look more about one strategic way tomorrow morning. But for now... 
I just want to give you some quick things. Because the temptation is to turn this into this illegalistic thing to make you feel righteous. Or I did do this now, so now I'm abiding, so I feel good about myself. I feel good about my Christian walk. No, no, remember here, abiding is already automatic for the believer. The believer abides. We're called to abide still in. But here are some practical ways to really just press in, to take in, so that we cherish this Christ whom saved us. Obviously, Bible reading. But as you read your Bible, here's one thing. As you read, and we'll probably talk more about this again tomorrow, but as you read and you walk away from your reading, what is one truth you can take away from what you read? That one truth is something that you can chew on the rest of that day. That as you read now your devotional time, you did that, check. But what is one truth that you read? Even this morning, if you did the quiet time, what is one truth that you can take away to chew on the rest of the day? This is, that's, that's, that's abiding. Where you're not just reading, but now it's dwelling within you. That I'm thinking about a sin to confess. I'm thinking about a way, something I can rejoice in the Lord in. I'm thinking about how good he is. I'm giving thanks to him because of this one truth I'm just chewing on. Memorizing the word. Because as you're memorizing it, you can meditate on it. Sitting under the preached word or taught word. So as you, as you hear the word preached, you take notes. And with those notes, you go back and reflect and look at what did he reference. Even be a Berean. Is what he said true? Let, let me think about this truth. How can I think deeply about this more? Even your small group times, small group times are not designed just to sit there and talk about life itself, but thinking about how the word applies to my life. In my life, I'm struggling here. What does the word have to say? And as the word applies to your life, you have a different understanding of now, how do I change? How do I grow? Even after church, after, after fellowships, the first thing we want to talk to with our friends after church is the video game, sports, whatever it is. But after church, talk about the sermon. What struck you with the sermon? What was something that convicted you? And maybe even not just asking someone, be the first to model that. When you talked in the first conversation, like, man, that was convicting when he said this. You know what was really encouraging for me? When this was said. And begin to stir up sound conversations of truth for you to chew on. Praying the Bible. That as you read, pray God's word. That we could pray in this, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would remind me of what is true. Help me to abide in you this day. Listening to sermons throughout the week. Inductive Bible studies. We can go on and on. But basically what I'm saying here, what are practical ways to get you to be immersed with truth in such a way that changes you? And this does not happen unless the Spirit of God works that in you. So you abide in him and he in you as his word works in you. And he begins working in you to desire to do what is fruitful and enables you to work and to produce the fruit so that it's for his good pleasure. It's really here, like I said, a picture of Philippians 2 verse 12 last night about working out your salvation. But when God works in you and he prunes the branch, the vine dresser is looking at you and he's smiling because it's through that hardship that you came out and you walk out. And now you're bearing more fruit. You look more like Christ. And it's through that pruning that the Lord looks at you and he smiles. He says, look at my child, how much more they trust me now. How much more they love me even more than they did before this. How much more my child is trusting my word even more. He looks at the pruning and though it hurt, though it may have brought grief, 
Though it may have brought toil to you, the Father looks and smiles and sees the work he's working in you for his good glory. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Remain in him. Cherish him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the perfect work of Christ. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have worked this into us. That as a believer, our confidence is only in what you have done in us. Our confidence is that you are God who is true to his promises. And you have said chiefly in Christ that you came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that was us. Father, I pray that this truth would be something that we just don't just know and recite, but one that we live out where we cherish you and your word. So, Father, I pray that we would be those who, who dwell who dwell with you, knowing that you dwell with us. So God, I ask for your help in that, that this would not just be something that we know, but something that we actually cherish and live. In Christ's name, amen.